You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Chapter 6, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 248. The book of Uh, Judges traces the spiritual declension of the nation of Israel. Uh, We see the nation's inability to learn the lessons of history. Uh, We also discover something of the amazing perseverance of God with a people who fail time after time after time. And in the midst of all of this, there are a variety of judges or deliverers that God raises up. And uh, it is one of these judges we're going to be uh, paying uh, some particular attention to this morning, that is Gideon. But we read in chapter 6 and from verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord for seven years. He gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you the land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, belonged to Joash, the Abezerite. Where, the, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hands of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, 
If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. The Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the men of the town got up, There was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself. When someone breaks down his altar, So that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal, saying, Let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. Fearless saint or fearful believer, what do you see when you look at yourself in the mirror? When God looks at us through Uh, his lens of grace, he sees the kind of person that he is determined to make us. 
And the story of Gideon uh, that uh, we've begun to read this morning is a story that describes a grace makeover. God transforms a jelly baby man into an iron man of faith and courage. So that no matter how pathetic we may consider ourselves to be, this passage uh, should encourage us to believe that in God's capable hands, uh, we too can be transformed into faithful and fruitful servants. Uh, I want to look at the passage we read together under three headings, verses 1 to 10, uh, sets the scene for deliverance. Verses 11, 24, the commissioning of the deliverer. And verses 25 to 32, the testing of a deliverer. Well then, the first of these, what is the context in which Gideon's story is set? Israel were sliding in a downward spiritual spiral. They engaged in syncretism, which involved weaving Canaanite uh, idolatry into the fabric of their own religious life. Significantly, when God's people begin to shed their distinctive beliefs uh, and practice, uh, and things begin to go wrong in their lives, they seldom ask the question, what is God saying to us through this? They seldom ask that question. And this question certainly was not voiced as annually wave after wave of Midianite camel cavalry invaded Israel, devastated their harvests. Indeed, Israel's initial response is found in verse 2b. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. They simply restructured their daily living and embraced a survival strategy. And that is a common response of many backslidden believers. Restructure our daily lives, employ survival strategies. And it took Israel seven years before they cried to God for help. And they did so, notice, not because they saw that their idolatry was offensive to God, but to gain relief from the discomfort they were experiencing. They were more preoccupied with the comfort lost than with the God they had offended and how did God reply? He began, you'll notice, not by sending a deliverer, but by sending a sermon. Not a deliverer, a sermon found in verses 7 to 10. And it drew a straight line between their discomfort and the covenant with God that they had broken. It republished a truth that they had suppressed 
God had forbidden idolatry, but they had, verse 10, not listened to him. This sermon was not the help that they had hoped for. They wanted the symptoms of their discomfort eradicated, but instead God provided them with a diagnosis of the spiritual disease that produced those very symptoms. And that was precisely the help that they needed. There is, is there not, often a great gulf between the help we hope God will give us and the help that we really need. And by rebuking his people in this way, God showed that he was not prepared to let them think that their sin was not serious. You see, just to have sent a deliverer might have implied as much. doesn't really matter. We'll get you out of this mess. But God's love in this situation is utterly uncompromising. His love does not let us go, but it doesn't let us off either. And that's what's being said in this sermon. And it's only after delivering this spiritual reality check that God goes on to recruit a deliverer in verse 11. What type of man is he going to recruit? A superhero, a captain courageous figure, uh, surely someone who would instantly command uh, national respect. Well, no, God's recruiting officer selects a man who is completely devoid of all of these champion qualities. Uh, And God certainly delights, he certainly delights to recruit uh, unlikely candidates. And this one is found in a hole in the ground in a wine press. Gideon is a jelly baby man who fears discovery by the Midianites as he winnows the little amount of grain that he had uh, managed to retain. Notice how he is addressed. He is addressed not as a jelly baby man, but as a mighty warrior. Verse 12. Isn't that amazing? He is described as a mighty warrior. How do we explain that strange uh, description? It points beyond Gideon's present condition to what God's grace would make him. You see, when God looks at us, He sees what his transforming grace is able to do in us and through us. Uh, It's uh, vitally important, I think, that we grasp that. He sees what his grace uh, can do. 
There is a very clear example of this happening in uh, Jesus' first encounter with Simon, you will remember. Jesus said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas or Peter, which means rock, Mr. Dependable. Who? Peter? Yes, Mr. Dependable. A description that wasn't true of Peter at the time, but would be true of Peter when God's transforming grace had done its work in his life. And that is a liberating truth, I believe, for us to grasp. To see beyond our frailty and our ordinariness to what God's grace might yet do in our lives. You'll notice that Gideon bypasses the mighty warrior comment, but he seizes upon the other part of the greeting. The Lord is with you. Ah, he says, well, it doesn't look very much like it from where I stand. Ah, where is the God of our forefathers who did all these mighty acts on our behalf? There's no evidence of that just now. His view had been culturally conditioned, and that happens. Israel foolishly believed that despite her sinful behavior, she should have been given some kind of perpetual immunity, a get-out-of-jail-free card. When this didn't happen, they reasoned, God has abandoned us. They allowed their present existence and experience to shape their doctrine of God. Instead, they should have allowed God's word to shape their view of him and then interpret their present experience in the light of that. Were they ignorant of the fact that uh, God's word had made it clear there was a covenant, uh, a, a conditional clause associated with uh, his covenant blessing. Deuteronomy 29 makes that abundantly clear. The breakdown of blessing and protection had occurred not because God had abandoned them, but because they had abandoned God. Indeed, their present chastening wasn't an evidence of God's abandonment. And that's what we often think and feel. We're being chastened. God has abandoned us. It was an evidence of his love. Hebrews 12, whom he loves, he chastens. You'll notice that by verse 14, Gideon grasps that he is actually a candidate in a commissioning service. God's words, am I not sending you, imply, don't you realize that as a result of this interview, you are to go in my name with the promise of my presence? However, you'll notice that Gideon is more preoccupied with his weakness than with God's power. I'm not a suitable candidate. I don't have the qualities, the resources, uh, or uh, the connections to fulfill this task. All of the excuses come out. I suppose it's true to say that this self-preoccupation was shared by Moses and Jeremiah 
when they were called of God, each tells God, you've got the wrong man. Uh, I suppose when you think about it, it's not such a bad response. It's Martin Luther who said, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. And really Gideon was saying, I'm a nothing. That's a good starting point for God. When we think we are a somebody. It's about time you called me to your service because I've got all of the gifts and abilities required to do what needs to be done in your service. Uh, Alarm bells should begin to ring. But that said, notice the incongruity of the expression in verse 15. But, Lord... Uh, You can't really stick those two words together, can you? But, Lord, this but challenges God's sovereign lordship, his limitless power, his unbounded knowledge. In uh, human uh, warfare, generals often get it wrong, do they not? They overestimate their resources. They underestimate the enemy. They have a limited knowledge of the conditions on the ground, so much so that their subordinates can legitimately question their decisions. But in contrast, God always, always knows what he is doing and how he intends to do it. And Gideon's objections are blown away in verse 16 when God says, listen, I will be with you. Compare that with the encouragement given to Joshua at his commissioning. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Or Jesus' words in Matthew 28, going to all the world to preach the gospel, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Think about it for a moment. What more can we ask than than that God is both for us and with us? What more do we need? But it's still not fully registered with Gideon, uh, who is doing uh, the commissioning. And that God could use a jelly baby man. Uh, Could he be hallucinating? Is, Is this maybe a joke? And so Gideon in verse 17 asks for a sign. Uh, Gideon's preoccupation with signs resurfaces again uh, later on in the chapter in verses 36 to 40 when he realizes that the army that he has is significantly outnumbered by the Midianites and he wants to be absolutely sure that God intends to uh, deliver the Midianites through uh, him and his 300 men. Give me a sign, he asks twice. This constant pursuit of signs isn't a mark of spiritual maturity, but it is one of struggling faith. And yet, God shows himself to be graciously condescending and compassionate towards such infant faith. In the 19th century, Hudson Taylor was called of God to be a missionary pioneer to China, This was before the days of airplanes and emails. And Taylor realized that he was going to have to depend upon God to provide for his needs on the other end of the world. 
And so he set about putting his infant faith to the test, and he was putting out fleece after fleece after fleece for God, so that his faith, which was weak uh, and struggling in the early days, would be strengthened, uh, which indeed it was. And Taylor, as many of you will know, went on to found one of the most fruitful faith missions uh, of his day. But going back to verse 19, Gideon prepares and presents an offering for his visitor. It's placed on an improvised altar before being miraculously consumed by fire at the touch of the angel's rod. However, this sign which should have brought great comfort to Gideon's heart, replacing doubt with faith, sets off a quite different reaction. You'll notice that Gideon has a panic attack. Verse 22, when Gideon realized that this was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He realized that he had seen uh, the living uh, God the angel of the Lord, a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, if you will. And in this whole context, it would appear that Gideon falls a victim to a paralyzing superstition. Many Jews believe that to see God meant instant death. Uh, later on in Judges 13, Samson's parents, when they're told to prepare for the birth of Samson, uh, they have the same kind of response. We're going to die. We've seen the angel of the Lord. We've seen God. We're going to die. But Gideon's fear here is quite irrational. He doesn't ask the question, would God commission me and then kill me to prevent me from fulfilling that commission? I wonder if we can trace his irrational fear to its source. I want to suggest to you that the enemy of our souls wants to immobilize us when God calls us to serve him in some particular way. And it's into those storms that Gideon was experiencing, this paralyzing fear that God speaks his shalom, his peace. Now, it's apparent that God's jelly baby man doesn't yet possess the courageous faith of a deliverer. And so, a process of testing and preparation uh, begins. First of all, Gideon is told to destroy the household altar to Baal that just happens to be in his front garden. It was a prominent landmark. Uh, indeed, it suggests that his family uh, were perhaps leading Baal worshippers in the town because the statue was in their garden. God's command teaches the importance of our witness at home. Before going further afield, it was important for Gideon to take his stand for God in his own home and in his neighborhood. Verse 25. Young Christians often reason 
that their service for God will truly begin once they move away from home. Then we'll really start serving God. Just let's get us out of this place where we're known into a new situation. Then our service will really really take off. We'll begin to do what God wants us to do. But you see, if God has done a grace makeover in our lives, then that should become most apparent to those who know us best. They can see the transformation. Do you remember the demoniac whom Jesus healed, uh, who wanted to skip town and go with Jesus and the disciples? Let me out of this situation. Get me away from this place where I've got a history. And Jesus' words to the man were, no, go home to your friends and tell them what God has done for you. Begin at home, witness at home first. That's the priority. Second, the altar of Baal had to be broken down before the altar of God could be rebuilt. Uh, Quite simply, consecration precedes service. We can't travel in two different directions at the same time. Gideon's action would mark a visible break with the past for all to see. Whenever God engages in a grace makeover, it will be marked by an observable turning from idolatry to the living God. Genuine inner repentance is marked by an outward, visible fruit of repentance for all to see. Uh, This is clearly illustrated, I think, in the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, You'll know that we are purposefully excluded from the the detail of the conversation that went on between uh, Jesus and Zacchaeus. But we can deduce what that conversation was from his subsequent actions. After the meal was over, uh, it's clear that the altars of greed and lust for money had been pulled down because here, this man wants to give away his money. He wants to right the wrongs he has done. He wants to give his money to the poor. And so Gideon's action was one which unmistakably and publicly said, I want you to notice there is a change in my heart allegiance. And that change was to be seen first at home. Thirdly, the task set for Gideon demonstrates that little steps invariably precede big steps. Gideon's new trust relationship in God needed to develop. Notice that he wasn't sent to the front line before attending the boot camp of faith. Courageous faith, unlike instant coffee, takes time to brew. When David faced Goliath, He had early experience of God's help with the lion and the bear. Only then, with that behind him, did he come to face Goliath and challenge him. 
It takes time for our confidence in God to grow. And uh, this is what's happening here. And Gideon's demolition team, they operated, verse 27, at night. He feared discovery. His obedience was tentative and fearful, yet he obeyed. And that's the important point. It is the obedience of faith that delights the heart of God. But it can also provoke violent opposition as here. For the morning after the demolition, the villagers demand Gideon's death. Obedience often proves costly. Others may not howl for our blood, though that does happen in some parts of the world, as we heard last week when Adam shared his news with us. Obedience is costly. But Gideon was learning that if he was unable to take his stand in his hometown and to trust God there, what hope could he possibly have in the heat of battle? The last thing I want us to notice here is that we discover that when fearful saints take courageous steps of obedience, God invariably finds ways to encourage them. You'll notice that Gideon is saved by his father's intervention. His dad must have been a big fan of Baal to allow his altar to be built in his land. But Joash's challenge to those wanting Gideon's death demonstrates, I believe, a new insight. If Baal is truly a god, then he's powerful enough to defend his honor against those who have destroyed his image. Let's wait and see what Baal does. Wow. What a thing for this Baal worshipper to say. Do you see what's happened here? Gideon's daring, defiant act of faith has caused his dad to sit up and to take notice. What could have brought such a transformation about in this hitherto compliant jelly baby boy of mine? What has made the difference? Gideon's action inspired his father with believing courage so much so that he took his son's side. Was that a first, I wonder? Surely this is a first step in Joash's own spiritual rehabilitation. Do you see what Gideon's witness has done in his home? The chief Baal worshipper perhaps in the town, transformed by his uh, tentative yet determined obedience to the will of God. And I suspect that Gideon's heart must have burst with joy 
as his dad, in a sense, crossed the line and stood beside him. And maybe put his arm around him and said, I'm with him. And he thought, wow. Uh, Dad uh, is standing side by side with me. uh, Perhaps for the first time. If you're a young believer here this morning, don't underestimate how God might use your faithful witness at home. When we take steps of costly obedience, we discover that God can find a whole variety of ways to bring great encouragement to our hearts. He encourages costly obedience. Isn't that truth wonderfully illustrated in our Lord's own life? When Jesus at his baptism Uh, came publicly to say, I've set my mind and my heart to fulfill the Father's will. I am going to the cross. This is the beginning of my public ministry. I know where I'm going and I know what it's costing. And the heavens were torn open as the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here is costly obedience, and it's met with divine encouragement. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. And Gideon was encouraged, but his preparation and equipment for battle is still incomplete. And of course, uh, that's another sermon. The rest of chapter 6 and 7 describes God's preparation of Gideon as the Spirit clothed himself with Gideon, verse 34, uh, possessing and empowering him for all that lay ahead. Then was the assembling of the army, the reassurance that came through the fleeces that were put out, uh, the reduction of the army to 300. That remarkable dream that uh, Gideon had some uh, insight into as he crept into the enemy camp, and discovered that panic was being spread there as a result of a dream that one of the Midianites had had, that Gideon and his men were going to come and defeat them. Uh, All of this uh, is in operation prior to Gideon with his 300 men in their jars and their torches and their shout at the top of the the surrounding hillside, uh, putting the enemy to flight. Now, the aim of the author in our passage is not to leave us thinking, what an incredible army or what a talented leader this is, but rather, what a great God we have who can use even a jelly baby man like Gideon and a few hundred farmers uh, to put to flight uh, an enemy as substantial as the Midianites were. God delights to use the weak because we cannot possibly attribute success to them. Paul says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one, no one may boast before him. You see, it's God who gets the applause because there's no other explanation uh, for what Gideon did. There's no other explanation for what you or I might do as people look at our lives and say, goodness, uh, they're nothing. They're absolutely nothing. But God can use nobodies to fulfill his purposes. When Samuel Brengel, who took over the leadership of the Salvation Army from William Booth, was introduced in a public meeting as the great Dr. Brengel. He went home and wrote these words in his journal. But I am so concerned that God uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. I could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I might never lose sight of this. Our focus must not be on the weakness of the instrument, but on the strength of the user. You may see yourself this morning as ordinary, as frail as a sheet of paper, a jelly baby man or woman. But in God's hands, he can fashion you into that servant who will bring to him a great revenue of glory. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.